So, uh, today, of course, the Parsha is... I won't tell you uh, how long the unopened cookies were in my Truma. house. That's a big thing. Okay. The portion of Truma. And um, maybe um, maybe the Rebetzin will share with us a little bit of her no. um, inspiration. She was this weekend joined by... She joined thousands of Chabad Shluchas from all over the world wow. that got together in uh, Brooklyn, New York. You this is to commemorate the Revitzin, the York side. Davening and learning. And Was it the same kind of convention? I went to a few Yeah, times. I didn't. I only went on Sunday. I oh, didn't go for the weekend. I love it. I'll tell you, maybe we'll, we'll try to tie it in just with this Parsha also today about... Can I give you a tea? You know, sometimes you, um, you know, life is such, you know, even in, in um, when things become routine, they become mundane, not exciting anymore. I mean, it's, we know today psychologists, they tell you, like marriage, for example, you know, if you just, you know, go through the same routine and then you go to work, you know, so it gets sort of dull, it gets boring, so that's why people go for a trip or people go out to various places to do something to uh, bring the fire out in you a little bit. We'll see that in a way that was the uh, purpose of the uh, Mishkan that we have is to fire us up, uh, you know, a little bit. But uh, let's not jump ahead of ourselves. But I was figuring that maybe uh, she heard some stories or some uh, some uh, experience just to meet uh, for us, I, for just from what I see in our family WhatsApp, is just to see the extended family. It must be like, uh, you know, uh, from my mother, may she rest in peace, her descendants. There must be like at least a hundred or more shluchas over there. They were all trying to uh, meet up with each other. So that was that was a, just a family alone, family alone. But then, you know, it's so. I think when they go to the convention, it sort of fires you up. It gets you a little bit. It's like uh, something gets you excited you again. Feel you know, like so. like a room full of Miriam, Hanaviah, Devoras, the women that were leading in, throughout the summer, the Rifka, the Ruffles, the Legit. You feel like you have that energy. Mm-hmm. You can do it. You yeah. can. Bring it to community. You can bring it to your family. Oh, that that's what just that's the kind of invert, that's it. invigoration that. kind of that you really do need. Their story is your story, and your story is their story. Do yeah. you understand? Everyone felt that. Oh, like mm-hmm. I had that story in my life. It could have been in my community. It could yeah. have been in my friends. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was really like so. Let's, um, you know, the, the actually it's very interesting that we start talking about this week's Parsha, about God telling them to build a structure for him. We talk about the Mishkan. And there's a lot of details first. It talks. And, uh, the surprising thing is that uh, there are many Parshas spent on all this, uh, probably, or not probably, it is the most discussed topic in the Torah, is the building of the Mishkan and the garments of the Kohen. So you have the structure, and then you have the vessels, and then right. Parshish Truma, and then you have Parshish Tetzaveh, part of Parshish Kisisa, Parshish Vayakil, and Parshish Pekude, they all talk about the Mishkan and the garments and the five. service. What? Yeah. Five Parshas. It's a lot. It's, and it's the only, the only topic is goes through so many different Parshas. Wow. 
it almost seems like it almost seems like redundant. Mm-hmm. You know, one is a little surprised because you know that many halachas, many laws, um, we learn out um, just from one letter, or not even sometimes from a letter, even from a uh, an extra point or something. You know, we, we learn from a tag, from a crown, one of the letters we. Uh, so, some people would say, you know, maybe the Torah is written just in a way, make it look, you know, nice, like po- po- like poetry, you know, so to speak, uh, or something just to write it in a nice way. And, uh, there's actually an interesting discussion in the Gemara in Pesachim. Uh, the Gemara has an interesting discussion over there. The Gemara tells us about one of the rabbis, Shimon ben another another version, but uh, uh, you know, in the Torah we always find the word S. S. S seems like an unnecessary word. So uh, it says, like, uh, let's say, Reishis Bara Likim, S Hashemayim. That happens. It could say, Reishis Bara Likim Hashemayim. Why S Hashemayim? He created the Shemaim and the Oretz. Why, why S Hashemaim? Why S Oretz? I think it's particular. Is it just that's the nice way to write it? Or it means something? You know, so you look at the Rashi, for example. Rashi says when it means S Hashemaim means not just the heavens, but everything that comes along with the heavens, like the stars and everything that's in the heavens. When it says Oretz, the earth, Esoretz means everything that comes along with the earth. Same thing is, so this rabbi, uh, he would go around and he started every S, he figured out each portion, he went through one by one, line by line, and there's hundreds, I'm afraid to say a thousand, I don't know what the number is, but hundreds, there's many, many, many S's, and he figured out, you know, additional, what to do with the additional S. As for example, one of the famous ones is, it says, Kabed S Avicha Ve'asimecha, you should honor your father. So you should say Kabed Avicha, why does it have to say Kabed S Avicha? So he said that S means, oh, not only your father, but also your older brother. An older brother sometimes, you know, took the place of the father, you know, in many, in many situations. So we learn from this. So that's the way, and he went through every S by S by S till he came to the portion of Devarim, the Deuteronomy. Over there it says, S Hashem Elokecha Tira. Why do we need S Hashem Elokecha Tira? Hashem Elokecha Tira, God your God, you should fear. to say S Hashem Elokecha Tira. Why do we need the word S over there? Now, who are we going to include? I mean, <laughs> Hashem, there's nobody to include. Are we supposed to fear anyone else? Is there anybody uh, else to fear? So he says to his students, he says, hey, you know what? I'm stuck. There's nothing to add to fearing God, having awe from Hashem and respecting God. There's nothing else you can include. Therefore, it must mean that the S is just written like that. So he went back and he said, Student said, What are we going to do with everything else that we already figured out? We had all the whole Chumash till the portions were him. 
Tumas Chana, we already fixed them all. We explained every single one of them. And here we're stuck. What are we going to do? So he says, look, just like I received reward from Hashem for expounding, I will receive reward for ceasing, for stopping. There's nothing. It basically, he resolved that he made a mistake, so to speak. And, you know, it just written, it says S, just like that. The Gemara says, Achebo Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva came along and he says, No, no, no. S Hashem the Rabbi's That this includes that you also have to have the respect for the sages, for a Tamil for somebody who studies Torah, because they are there to teach the Torah of Hashem and by extension giving them the respect, having the right attitude towards them is actually ends up being respecting Hashem. So he says, no, 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 you don't have to discount. Every S is exactly. So basically the reason I bring down this Gemara now is to show even the word S has a meaning. Even though you can do without the S's, you don't need the S, but S has a meaning. So why would the Torah spend so many parishes discussing the uh, building and repeating again and again and some of it is just redundant it's not doesn't teach you anything new I mean we don't see anything new it just keeps on going on and on and on and five parshas um, when every word of the Torah is counted yeah I read a commentary that it's so emphasized to counter the golden calf that we made in Kisisa Okay, that's an interesting uh, commentary. I'm going to mention that commentary as well. Okay. Who's the commentary? Do you read it? Or you heard it? No, I read it. I can look up who, who said it's it. It's a forno, I believe. I don't know. Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. So I'm going to mention that as well. Yeah. But that needs an introduction. Yeah. But, well, actually, the question really is, why does the Torah write about it? Okay, that's to offset is one thing, but why do we, why do we need it so so many times? So the Rebbe brings out in the point. The Rebbe says, just like so to speak, human beings, when there's something that you enjoy, you like to talk about it. Something that you like, you talk about. Whether you talk about your grandchildren, whether you talk about your latest iPhone gadget, or you talk about uh, whatever, whatever is joyful to you. So if you enjoy something, then you discuss it, then you schmooze about it, you tell everybody about it, you share about it, you know, everything exciting, your new car, your new whatever, whatever, whatever excites you, you talk about it. Basically, people talk about what they like, so to speak. We find in the Apostolic earlier, by the story when Eliezer went to find a bride for, uh, for Yitzchak. So, he tells him the whole story, how he's going to find the girl, and how he's going to, and he goes through the whole process, the whole process, and goes on and on and on, and then it repeats itself again. So Rashi says, Rashi says over there, that, um, That this was why does the Torah repeat it? It brings from the Gemara. He says because Hashem really enjoyed 
He enjoyed that conversation. It was a beautiful conversation. Hashem repeated it is because he loved the devotion of the slave and how he he uh, he was finding this girl and how the divine providence played in and everything worked out. This is such a beautiful thing. And Hashem enjoys it. So he sort of repeats it. It's something that he loves. So the Rebbe says that with that that idea would apply for the Mishkan as well. This is something which Hashem enjoys. Something which is very enjoyable to Hashem. So he keeps on talking about it more and more. Something. But then the question that we were trying to understand is, what does Hashem enjoy so much about the Mishkan? In the first place, what is so enjoyable? On the contrary, it almost seems absurd why would we be requested, Hashem says to, uh, to us, take a donation, make f- for me a sanctuary that I can dwell in. That's such a paradox. Having Hashem live in the paradise. We know Hashem is everywhere. Here we're saying, no, Hashem says, you know what? I want you to confine me I want you to take me, put me in one place. Every time when we daven, we're facing to the east. Why? To the Beis Hamikdash. If you're in Jerusalem, you face Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, you face the Beis Hamikdash. If you're in the Beis Hamikdash, you face the Kodesh Hakadoshim. You're always facing. Why? And if I pray to Hashem over here, He doesn't hear me. If I'm not, why? Is are we limiting? Is Hashem only in a certain place? Are we def- making Him? Pushing him in into a, a little uh, uh, a square over there, into the into the uh, Mishkan, into a small place. The place of the Kodesh Hakadoshim was a small area. We're putting him there, and we're saying over there he is, and he's nowhere else. I mean that is not sound right. So why this? And five portions are talking about all of this about this uh, limitation. It's interesting that when Hashem tells us to make the, the when Hashem tells us to make him a sanctuary, he spends a lot of time talking about it. It means he loves it and something's very special, which we're trying to figure out why. But Hashem creates the world, you know, embracious, you know, you have twenty-six verses and that talks about creation. Then we go on. You know. God's creation isn't as exciting to Hashem as the creation of man or what man creates. What is really dear to Hashem, what is special in the eyes of Hashem, is something when we built for Him, when we built for Him a sanctuary, when we built for a structure, that becomes something which really finds favor in the eyes of Hashem. So let's for a minute discuss... um, how the whole building of the Mishkan took place. Um, Janice mentioned before that the Mishkan came place, took place. Some commentaries say the Mishkan took place as a consequence of the eagle, of the golden calf. That after the Jews worshipped the golden calf and got became very angry with them. And God said that he's going to destroy 
the people. Moshe Rabbeinu interceded, and Hashem forgave them, and then God told them to build the Mishkan. If you read the Parsha, the order doesn't seem that way. Because in this week's Parsha, we say that God says to Moshe to build, and we have the Truma Tetzave. The story of the golden calf comes in the portion of Kisiso. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like first Hashem told him to build the Mishkan, and after that, they built the golden calf. So according to that, the way it says in the Parsha, the building of the Mishkan is not a response to the building of the golden calf because they were told it before they ever made the golden calf. If you read the verses the way it's organized in the Chumash, you have the portion of Truma and Tetzave where God instructs Moshe to construct the Mishkan and the, and the vessels and the garments. And then comes the story on the 17th day of Tammuz when Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from the mountain. Then it was the uh, breaking of the Luchas and then eventually by Yom Kippur he was, forgave them and then they looked, yeah. Um, but we also brought Acadia wood or something? Was what? From Egypt. Acadia wood. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what were we going to do with that? You know, so maybe it was at some point it was very the good, intention. Good, very good, good point. Uh, what Chayana is talking about, that Rashi says, uh, God told them to make uh, use acacia wood, acadia wood, whatever the world in the atzeshitim. Uh, where do they get in the desert? Where do they get this acacia wood? Where do they get this atzeshitim? How do they get it over there? So those tall trees. So Rashi says that Yaakov had a vision in a spiritual way, Ruach HaKodesh, that Hashem is destined to command them to build a Meshkan. And they carried it along. And therefore, uh, he told his sons to go ahead and build. One possibility is saying, without once, well, one possibility, I mean, just thinking about it, is perhaps Yaakov saw what the command was going to be later on, and he was able to see the future before it actually happened. Oh. That doesn't mean that Hashem didn't command him. He knew sort of what's going to take place later on. He had oh. prophetic uh, ability, so he could tell. But it doesn't mean the command... Certainly when Yaakov planted it, he didn't, there was no command. He just saw, he knew that in the future God was going to command and maybe that could be after the whole turmoil, after the story of the eagle. But nevertheless, Rashi does say that this was the, the Mishkan was sort of a, a testimony that God has forgiven them. So, uh, even though it takes the verses out of order, according to Rashi's understanding, Rashi understood. Rashi says that sometimes the way the record is in the Chumash, is not necessarily the sequential order, the way things mm-hmm. took place. Sometimes things are recorded out of place for whatever reason. In this case, Rashi says, There's nothing earlier or later. doesn't mean that it happened earlier or later. Rashi places the story of Hashem as a result, after God forgave them for the sin of the eagle, which we read in the Parashas Kisisa, that is when God says, okay, I want you to build for me a sanctuary. How do these things 
connect? How do these things connect? Besides the fact that this is a uh, evidence, as Rashi says, on a very simple level, that God has forgiven them because God is going to rest in the divine, is going to rest in the Mishkan. God is going to rest there means there were miracles there, there was the cloud over there, there was the holiness. You can see there was a holy one. They built the Mishkan and and the cloud and nothing filled. Moshe Rabbeinu was very embarrassed, as we learned in the portion of, of Shmini over there, that they made it, they created, they prepared. So there was a, uh, a presence uh, from Hashem, from God, inside of the physical Mishkan. There was a presence of them. But the question that we were wondering was, why do we need a presence of Hashem in such a physical structure when the presence of Hashem is, is everywhere? And how does this relate to the sin of the golden calf? But actually it makes a lot of sense if we take this line of sequences because God basically, as the Sephorno says, after Matan Torah, God said to them, break me an altar, whatever you want. In other words, you can pray and make an altar. We don't need a, a mishkan. Abraham went and taught the people about monotheism. The whole world believed in idols. They believed in uh, worshipping the sun, the moon, the stars. Abraham Avinu's whole idea was that God isn't physical. God is not... uh, It doesn't make sense to worship any physical uh, beings or items. And even... Items that provide for us, like the sun, they're merely uh, like tools in the hands of, of Hashem. Hashem makes them there, but they don't have any independence, and they're not worthy of being worshipped. Just like uh, you're not going uh, to praise the hammer for building a beautiful uh, wall. It's not the hammer, it's the person that built it. The hammer is merely a tool which the builder uses Hashem uses the various tools. And here, this is all what we're trying to explain and give us ideas that Hashem is one, He's only, He's not nothing physical and all this. And then here we're building for Hashem a very physical, we're building Him a structure. We're bringing exactly, we know the exactly what vessels and the measurements and how they have to be. That we built cherubs, golden cherubs, you know, they're physical, they have wings and everything else almost seems a little scary. You know, this is the, uh, this is the Mishkan. This, how come we're making it so physical, you know? Because we need it. Yeah. It's a so, place for us to... Because what happened... Yeah, exactly. But, because, but the timeline here makes a lot of sense now. Because, perhaps, if we can say that, originally Hashem's intent, so to speak, was... No, that we don't need to have any physical manifestation of Hashem's presence. The spiritual, that's it. You know that famous joke they say about this Russian teacher that said it several times that uh, was trying to teach the kids not to believe in anything they don't believe. They don't believe in God, they don't believe in anything spiritual. So she was telling the children, she says, if you see the table with your eyes, you see the chair with your eyes, that means that there is, but you don't see God with your eyes, it doesn't exist. And the, one of the children responded and said, but 
you know, if you see the teacher's hands and his feet, so you know they exist, but you don't see his brains. It means he doesn't have any. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you, Hashem wanted, it seemed like, originally, according to this line of thinking, for the people to believe in Hashem without any physical need. But here, look what happens. Moshe Rabbeinu leaves them for a few days, for 40 days. So now there is no physical Moshe Rabbeinu who is intermediate between them and God. What do they do? They even build a golden calf. They need something physical. They need something physical so that they can sort of relate to. They can't relate to. That was, the Jews showed Hashem, so to speak, that no, they can't just relate to the spiritual. They must have some physical manifestation. So basically, Hashem gave in to them and said, if that's your need, He says, okay, you need something very physical. You need something to go to. You need something to relate to. Build a Mishkan, build Kruvim, build all these things, and you'll have something physical to connect. And build something also, build something um, which is going to inspire you. Uh, which when you come there, like we said, when you come there, you'll be, like we talked about the Shluchos Convention, build a place, a beautiful place, a magnificent place, with all of the Torah <laughs> describes the various different tools, and when you come to the Beisam, the Mishkan, or later on the Beisam Mikdush, you see the, be- the beauty, the physical beauty, and you also see the spiritual holiness and when you come there, you get inspired. Then you get sort of reinvigorated. Then you get excited about Yiddishkeit. You get excited about it. You don't have the base of English. You have a shul. You come to the shul. Hopefully the rabbi gives you a nice Tvar Torah. gets you a little excited. You get reinvigorated. You come to a place. Hopefully we can make the shul look a little nicer. But, you know, just... but. That's why it's important for a shul to be the most beautiful place in the, in, the, in the city. The shul needs to be the tallest place in the city. The shul needs to be the, the most beautiful place in the city. The shul is supposed to inspire you both with its physical beauty and its spiritual beauty. When you go to a shluchas convention, you cannot be helped but be overwhelmed with, first of all, the physical, the display, the beauty over there. I'm not talking about the people, but I'm talking about the uh, just the display over there, the, the, the food and the decor and the and the service and the just it's it's just something which overwhelms you as much as you think that you're spiritual, it still gets to you although you're still physical. The architect. And yes, and yet, not sure what the architect there is, but maybe. Uh, but yet, on the other hand, you're also overwhelmed by the spirituality, by the power of the soul. So you have them both. The Beis Hamikdash served for that purpose. It was a a physical manifestation. It was something that Hashem gave them, tangible, something very, very... The story told about person hurt, learned about it, came close to 
Judaism. He was a very simple, but he was very earnest and very serious. And he read about in the portion of Teruma, talks about that they used to make the table, and then on the table they had the special bread. Now it has a very, very physical, there is the physical bread, and there is a table, you brought it once a week, and it was sort of called the God's bread, and it's uh, the offering for Shishmagad, and he felt very, very bad that there's no Beis Hamikdash today, and there's nowhere to give the bread to to the Abish there to Hashem. He wanted to, he wanted to give Hashem. He wanted to give the, the the bread to Hashem. So he talks to his wife. He says, "You know what? I have an idea. I have an idea. Let's try it." He says. He says, "You know, you bake very good challah. You bake very good challah." So he says, "Let's try it out." Look, a simple guy. He says, let's try it out. He says, you bake two of the most delicious challahs that you can bake. And I will go, where is no Beis What's the closest thing? There's a shul. What's this most holiest place in the shul? Is the Aron Kodesh. He says, you know what? I will go. I will place the two challahs into the Aron Kodesh. And we'll see what happens, whether, you know, if Hashem takes them or not, you know, then maybe like in the, in the Beis HaMikdash. Okay. So, he goes, puts it in there, nobody's there, when night, nighttime, nobody's there, puts in the chalas into the yard, Kodesh. You know, a little later, before, this was like Thursday night, you know, before Shabbat, even. At night, and later on, the Shabbos, the guy who's attended, comes in, you know, those days, the attendant used to be a Jewish guy, they gave Parnassah to a Jewish guy, they didn't hire a, uh, going to do it, uh, somebody of the needed a poor poor person needed something to for livelihood for his family. It was barely barely when the shul can afford to pay him. He didn't pay him a little bit. So and you know he comes to shul and he, he prays, opens up the Aron Kodesh and he prays to Hashem. He says, Hashem, you know you support everybody, you feed everybody. Why can't you give me a little bit? Uh, and all of a sudden, he sees there's a bag of two chalas. <laughs> he runs home. He tells his wife. He says, Hashem, you won't believe it. Hashem answered my call. I opened up the Oran Kodesh, and I prayed for two chalas, and boom. <laughs> and here's the two chalas. Now, this other guy was very curious to see did Hashem take his challah? So when nobody is there after Shabbos, he goes back. Challah is gone. He says to his wife, "Hey, you know Hashem really takes the challahs." <laughs> he says, "He says next week we'll do the same thing." And guess what? And the the, the Shabbos learned to pray, and every week this guy is bringing the challah, and the other one is is taking the challah. <laughs> so the story goes one. Evening, because the rabbi was there, the rabbi comes to the shul. All of a sudden, he sees somebody walks in quietly, opens up the Kodesh. He says, what is So he couldn't lie to the rabbi, what is he going to say? So he started, he started crying, and he says to the rabbi, he says, to be honest with you, you know what? I, I felt bad, we don't have the base of English, and I, and I bring chavos for the Abish to take. 
And the rabbi, you know, uh, let him have it. He says, what kind of a fool are you? You know, he made it. He says, what kind of a thing? You know, the Abraham said, you bring the you know, based on you do such such foolish things. You know, he gave him a whole big drosha. And in the meantime, the whole commotion, the shamus who was, you know, on the other side, hears. He comes around, he's, oh. So all of a sudden he starts to realize That's not Hashem sending him the chal. <laughs> so the Shabbos figured out that this guy, he's taking the chal, he's giving the chal. So at least it was, so it was resolved. That night, it says, I think, I'm not sure who it was, the, the rabbi of the town, great tzaddik, was the, um, the reason or somebody says that, that this rabbi is not going to make it, you know, it was very, very bad. He's not going to make it to the end of the year because of what he did. Because he says what he did was he took away from this person his gift to Hashem that he gave every week and he took away from the other person that the gift that Hashem gave them every week. So he thought he did right, but he did terrible, terrible wrong. It was something very, very bad that he did. Which really means, which really means it came through a manifestation of something very, very physical uh, in this way. The truth is that the Abishter has all the various different agents, uh, the way the Abishter sends things to us, the way the Abishter gives us things. But the Yidden at that time, the Jews at that time, according to this interpretation, the Jews at that time wanted something very, very physical, something to associate with. But then we have the other idea says that, the other view, the Ramban, he argues, he says, no, he says, why do we have to change the order of the verses? He says, no. He says, the problem is that everybody has is, uh, why did Moshe Rabbeinu wait? For that we know at the end of the Pesukim that Moshe Rabbeinu waited to tell them about the Mishkan until after Yom Kippur, after he came down the third time. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to wait so long? Why didn't he tell them like the first time when he came down? After he came down, after the 40 days were up? So the Ramban says that's not such a strong question. The answer is very simple. He says because since the Jews made the golden calf. So actually Hashem told them before they should build the Mishkan. Not as a result of their making the... uh, of making the idol, but God has told them to make a mishkan. But what is he going to tell them about making a mishkan when they made the, the idol? Hashem gave them the luchas, he broke it. So Moshe Rabbeinu did not feel uh, comfortable or proper to go ahead and tell them now about building a mishkan when all the Jews went and sinned like that. So therefore he delayed it to later. He says we don't have to change it. So, but according to this, the question again becomes... So what's the purpose so much of the Mishkan? What is the purpose of the Mishkan? Making and limiting and bringing down Hashem. Uh, matter of fact, the Medrash says that Moshe Rabbeinu said this. Shlomo HaMelech who built the Beis HaMikdash said this. They all said, how could you be contained in just a room and such? If the heavens and the heavens heavens can't contain Hashem, how is Hashem going to be contained in such a room? What does this mean, the containment? 
And perhaps one of the other ideas that is brought down in, 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 in Hasidus, in the Kabbalah, in other places is that actually Hashem's message is that you can find Hashem even in the smallest, in the physical, in the most mundane thing. A lot of people think that how could it possibly be that they count, that their mitzvah or their action or their lack of it matters to Hashem? If Hashem is infinite and Hashem created so many millions and millions of people, so many things in the world, there is such a large universe and spiritual beings and worlds and angels and all these different creations. Does it matter to Hashem if I do a small thing, a very little thing, a very insignificant thing? Does it make a difference if I lit the candles for Shabbos or not? What difference does it make in the in the in the big picture or something? Hashem told us to make a Mishkan to tell us, of course Hashem is everywhere. Of course Hashem is in charge and you can pray to Hashem under all circumstances. But Hashem wanted to show us that Hashem can actually come down in the smallest, in the lowest, in the most simplest. And when you learn the Hasidic philosophy, it tells you that actually in the lowest, in this physical world, for example, you can actually take with simplicity, you can take more of Hashem than you can take in the spiritual levels. Uh, When a person does a simple act, you can sort of relate to Hashem in even a more powerful way than you can relate to Hashem through the most spiritual and the highest ways. The Ebrister, Hashem gave us a physical place, a place to daven. It's a place for us to get together, to be reinvigorated, but also to remind us that every simple act that we did, all the physical beings that we are and the physical matters that we do, and everything that we're dressed up in is are very, very important to Hashem. And we built a Mishkan for Hashem through our actions, both through our study of Torah, through our doing of mitzvahs. And as we know that, um, well, the Pasuk says that I will dwell amongst you. And our sages tell us it doesn't mean that he dwells in this sanctuary, but he dwells in each person of us. So, just like Hashem dwells in the physical, in a base medrash, in a base amikdosh, in the uh, shul, Hashem dwells in the each individual person. We make and we create for Hashem. It's called a in the Kabbalah, it's called a dira betachtonim, that we make a dwelling place in this low world for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That means that the great HaKadosh Baruch Hu can even come down into this world, and specifically in this world. And we can relate to Him, and we have the ability to connect to Hashem 
and in a more powerful way than anybody else. So the Mishkan is representative of that. And yet, the Mishkan also showed us all the various different miracles. It inspired us, and it also told us the message that we're all important. And that's why we're actually praying all the time. Why do we pray all the time? We pray for the third base of English. We want, we want that physical structure, because when Mashiach will come and build us the third base of English, we will see God's revelation in the very physical world, that this world is not an obstacle to Hashem. It's not something which blocks Hashem's light, but rather this world is a place where Hashem rests. All we got to do is we got to remove some of the blocks and then we can merit to get the uh, Shekhinah in here. So to sum it up, we have the two ideas that we discussed today, either because it's to we requested it, so it's also for us. We requested it, and therefore um, we needed something physical to hold on. Which, by the way, the Rambam also gives a similar explanation. What is the Karbanot? What is all the sacrifice? He also says, he says because the Jewish people coming from uh, Egypt in which they worshipped the they needed something, sort of. He says, Hashem gave it to them because that was what they needed. But in the Kabbalah, we know, like the second idea that we were discussing, that actually the manifestation of the greatest level comes through the most physical. So when we take the physical and we channel it, that's a way to connect with the greatest infinity. So the infinite connects with the most finite versus then the most spiritual. So this physical world connects with Hashem in a more deeper way. And that's why we have the Karbonos, and that's why we have the physical Beis But the bottom line is that we pray for the Beis to be built, speedily in our days, and then we'll have the third Beis And if we merit, we'll happen soon, uh, before... Pesach by Pesach will do in the Islam. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 so, no. Yeah? I was agreeing. <laughs> Let's oh, hope so. <laughs> so now maybe we ask, uh, we have a few more minutes, and maybe ask Mrs. Wilson to give us over a little bit of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the Shluchas Convention.